This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Amy Webb, professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU and founder and quantitative futurist at the Future Today Institute. Amy, that's a hell of a job title. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting job title. Futurism is hot is hot right now. Yeah, don't take this question the wrong way, but like, is this uh, something you've been on for a long time, or are you a trend? You're just jumping on the fad of futurism. Yeah, and- yeah. So to answer that question, uh, yes, I have been doing this for almost 15 years. Yeah. But it does sound it's a it's a weird sounding job title. I totally get that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting though, and a lot of people especially in the United States, don't know this, is that strategic foresight is really what the field is called, not futures or futurism. Uh, But strategic foresight's been around for almost 100 years. And it's an interdisciplinary academic specialty that usually attracts people who are really interested in statistics and economics, but can't make up their mind and they want to study a whole bunch of other things, (laughs) like (laughs) sociology and behavioral economics. And in my case, it was game theory and political science. And what's interesting is that the word futures and our obsession with the future and interest in the job title futurist tracks uh, very specifically in a very, very directly correlated way with the advent of new technologies. Mm-hmm. So there was a big resurgence in futures studies and futurism in the 60s when we were racing to get to space. And it happened again in the 80s uh, during the advent of the personal computer and the internet. And we're starting to see the same thing happening now, I think, because of AI. Right. Is it because people are actually uncertain about like things are changing so quickly that they they're more worried or or interested in what comes next in the changing world we're in i think that using the word futures and futurist mm-hmm. really has more to do with our interest in what's coming and our mm-hmm. apprehension about it a lot of the work that i do is pretty boring it's quantitative analysis. <laughs> it's like, it's me sitting at a computer looking at models. Um, yeah. And uh, I think the perception of a futurist is that, you know, we all have crazy hair and we, you know, build beautiful prototypes of things. And there are certainly some people who in the field have crazy hair and, and build models of things. But a lot of this is, is in sort of strategic thinking. So I, I'm as a developer, designer, CEO, I get the sense I probably should know what when you say quantitative model or, or something, what that yeah. is. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Would you explain yeah, no, it to I, me I, I, and, and to the audience? Yeah, for sure. So first of all, futurists who are really doing this sort of for real don't make predictions. Yeah. So, um, you know, a prediction is going with your gut. It's maybe taking your own real world experience and mm. melding that together with some of the stuff you've you've read on different websites and coming up with some hypothesis about what that might look like down the road. That's not what I do. And mm. I don't have a crystal ball. And the dark secret uh, is, is I don't know what the future is. I, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Um, the future hasn't happened yet. And, you know, life is sort of one 
gigantic equation with a lot of different variables. And so I can't predict what the future is going to look like. The best that I can do is gather data in the present, listen for weak signals, and track as those signals move from the fringes to the mainstream, and then think through, okay, well, what are the second, third, fourth order implications of all of this? And what do the scenarios look like based on all that information? And if this is what we think the year 2027 looks like, what decisions do we need to make in the year 2017? So that's really what all of this is. And it it is a lot of work, but you know, a lot of the strategic thinking is something that anybody can do. And folks who are working in the product development mm-hmm. sector in all different industries should absolutely be engaged in this because it'll help them design more durable solutions to our everyday problems. Is there a particular area of interest that you have that guides where your focus is? Yeah, so I focus a lot on the intersection of uh, technology, information, and business. But there are futurists who focus, for example, just on healthcare, Mm -hmm. or people who just focus on the environment. So I've actually had two careers. My first career was journalism. I was a a journalist, and then sort of accidentally uh, and then intentionally moved into this. Mm -hmm. So my perspective on all of this is you know, very much rooted in, you know, what I learned when I was a foreign correspondent working in China and in Japan and seeing all kinds of crazy new technologies that hadn't hit the United States yet. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we need to be aware of? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's see. Well, for everyday consumers and everyday people, Mm -hmm. you know, our information ecosystem is getting a lot more distributed. And I think it's no secret that as a result of this, it's harder to find reliable, credible information. Yeah. And that's not just about current events. It's also about the products in our lives. So if you think about a lot of the content that's out there, it's product reviews, right? Mm-hmm. But we know how easily it is to game the recommendations and the yeah. number of stars that, right? And there's also really interesting things happening with like deep linking. So if you're a mobile app developer, you can sort of now use the operating system to link information between applications rather than having to go back out to the mobile right. OS. But in a way that that's also about decisions and that can be gamed, you know, as well. So we're surrounded by a lot of information. The landscape is pretty distributed and life is going to get more complicated, not less complicated, mm-hmm. I think. As a manager, I sometimes feel like access to information not only for me but for the whole team is overwhelming in the same way that it can be on an individual level for ind- your individual day-to-day life. And I, and I mean like information about new business practices and company X is doing this and company Y is doing that and we want to be the best kind of company we can and uh, maybe we should do that, maybe we should do this. It presents challenges where you feel like you don't quite know what to do at every step of the way and you're just trying to do a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think we don't always acknowledge the cognitive biases that stand in our way. Mm-hmm. So one of the great challenges, I think, it, you know, as we're racing towards the future, is that we tend to forget about our past, you know. Mm. And that's important because we oftentimes want to use the things that happened in the past 
as predictors for what's likely to happen in the future. And that runs the gamut from how users have interacted in the past with certain types of interfaces, how people have spoken to machines in the past. You know, maybe if you think about the first wave of augmented reality, Mm -hmm. uh, the first wave of commercial augmented reality, so this would have been 2009, that it didn't quite take off. And then, you know, Google Glass didn't quite take off and Pokemon Go was sort of a flash in the pan. So AR is sort of, you know, I, I still see a lot of companies that are putting all of their weight in the sort of mixed reality ecosystem into VR. They think that's a better play than AR, even though the signals are pretty clear that every major tech company is throwing huge amounts of money right. into AR. But the feeling is, oh, but it didn't work this time. It didn't mm-hmm. work that time. Therefore, it probably won't work in the future. Yeah. How do you tell the difference between something that's actually part of the future and something yeah. that's just a distraction or a fad? Right. So that's the benefit of tracking trends. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what I do is pattern recognition. And trends are a description of, and again, because I cover technology, yeah. trends are a description of the fundamental shifts in human behavior as we relate to technology, as technology relates to information, as all of that relates to business and even government. So the trick is to sort of listen for weak signals as they're emanating from the fringe and then track them and then see how do these trends fit together? Are they nodes that connect to other nodes? Mm -hmm. And the more and more sort of we look at this and we look at it from different perspectives and vantage points, do we get a clearer sense of what's happening? And I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Yeah, that'd be great. So many, 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 many years ago, there was something called Foursquare. <laughs> <laughs> Long time ago. Uh, there was something called Foursquare. There was something called Gowalla. And yeah. there was something called Scavenger, which famously had no vowels. Yeah. So we had these three apps that sort of launched at around the same time. But Foursquare was not necessarily a completely original idea. Um, The founders of Foursquare had earlier tried a different, similar kind of application called Dodgeball. Okay. It was a little too early. So Foursquare, Koala, Scavenger, they basically all launch at the same time. They usher in the era of badges, right? And everybody on the planet wants their own colorful badges, merit badges um, for various different things. Companies see this as a huge marketing opportunity. Universities also see this as a huge marketing opportunity. They start throwing all kinds of money into it. And everybody gets fixated with the notion of checking in. Mm -hmm. And checking in, which is the act of a person using their phone to sort of tell others where they're at, and they get a reward as a result, that's the thing that everybody was fixated on. In truth, that was not the trend. The badges weren't the trend. They were trendy. Yeah. But that wasn't the trend that was worth tracking. The trend that was worth tracking was pretty boring. It was location-based services. Mm -hmm. That's an important distinction because the organizations that saw, okay, there's something here with location-based services, these badges and the checking in and all this stuff is going to be around. But what does the shift in human behavior using your device to signal I am here, what does that mean further down the road? Mm -hmm. Right? And that concept is what laid the groundwork for something like Uber. Right. Or even what, uh, so I happen to know of Scavenger because they're a past client of ours when they transitioned to Level Up, which is yep. a payment service and yep. allows you to pay 
at a store, but also get credits and promotions and that kind of thing when you're essentially uh, they entirely drop checking in. You just have to pay for what you're buying at the store with Level Up. And that's what Scavenger transitioned into, I think, because they saw what the uh, check-in sort of location-based services, where that was headed. Yes. However, Mm -hmm. the founder of Level Up was all over the place. Was this 2013, maybe? 2000. I'm getting my dates off a yeah. little bit, but in the early 2010s, mm-hmm. you know, he was everywhere talking about gamify the game layer on top of the uh, the mobile yeah. world, and all of that was a big distraction. And mm. and you know, I know that they've pivoted and right. that they're now a payment system, but I'm not even sure that he saw that. Right. Yeah. I think he may have been fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Is that common? Yeah. Like it's hard to predict what's going to happen, right? So you may have a sense. Oftentimes. There's also an element of risk, too, where it's like, well, I think that this is the right direction to head in, but it's not a guarantee. And so am I going to bet the future of my company or my happiness on this option when, you know, maybe it's a 50-50 chance? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Again, I think it comes down to it maybe a better way in this podcast to talk about this is features versus architecture, yeah. right? And another way to think of it is what Jeff Bezos said, which is to be strong on vision and and loose on the details, right? Mm -hmm. So the challenge is when organizations, especially when they become successful or they're hot, you know, they get hot because of a feature, right? What winds up happening is everybody chases the feature right? and they start investing in the feature and they think that the feature is where things are headed. And when the feature ultimately peters out, because they always do, then it makes it look as though the company was misguided or they were making, you know, it, it's about being strong on vision. And even Foursquare, which, which you know, Goala doesn't exist anymore. Scavenger yeah. doesn't have its game mechanics anymore. So Foursquare is still around and it's done some pivoting as well. But I don't get the sense that they were always strong on vision, which right. is we're going to be the preeminent location-based services platform right. that everybody else will tie into. And I have to wonder... You know, had would they have gone through a down round if mm-hmm. that had been the plan all along and they celebrated the success of some of the features, but that didn't become their main thing. And yeah. I think that a lot of startups run into this problem, investors run in, you know, mm-hmm. this is this is a challenge. And right. it's hard because you work and you work and you work and finally you get this critical mass of people who are excited and who are using the product. You have to keep everybody's sort of expectations in check, right? Right. That we're chasing like this. And again, like this is the point of this thing, right? Whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. What happens if you find yourself in a position where you didn't have that vision to begin with? You've just sort of stumbled on the feature that makes you successful, which I think you're probably arguing that that's probably what Foursquare and those other ones did. They didn't have necessarily the big picture. They were chasing the successful feature. Yeah. Is there a way to course correct or is there a way to to build up the systems to do a better job? I mean, I think that that's where the leadership comes in, mm-hmm. right? Because that's difficult. And I, I didn't advise these companies and I wasn't inside of any of them when they were still around uh, in their original forms. But you have to wonder, was there a leadership decision that could have put everybody back on course, mm-hmm. right? And I think that there was a nugget of something there with Level Up. And I... 
when I'm in Boston, I see level up, but I don't see level up anywhere else. Right. But you have to wonder if Seth had been really intent on building this game layer, Mm -hmm. right, on top of the mobile world. If that was really the plan, that's an interesting concept. The problem is that the game mechanics were terrible to start, right? Because with Scavenger, go, there was like a challenge. You could go right. stand in the park like a statue. Well, who verifies the fact that you've done that, mm-hmm. right? So it becomes easy to game the game. But it's interesting because, you know, having that ability to make a seamless payment, I think Level Up was doing this using mobile before a lot of other payment gateways were. Mm-hmm. You know, having a seamless mobile payment system that doesn't require me to pull out a credit card or, you know, any of the other conventional, use cash, right? And on top of that, I get local rewards or I build affinities Mm -hmm. with local merchants. You know, that's something that's actually pretty interesting because what it amounts to theoretically are sort of micro economies, right? right? And then these micro economies at scale, you know, is there interesting ways to, to do something with them? Anyhow, I don't know what happened inside of that company, but that's not the direction right. that they, they headed in. It strikes me that it's it's hard to maybe commit to something if you aren't sure if it's high risk or you don't truly yeah. l- believe in it. If you've if, And that would be hard to do if you've sort of just stumbled upon it. So that's where some tools and frameworks come into play. Mm-hmm. And that's where the you know, a lot of us who are futurists, like I said, had some form of economics or game theory or statistics where risk analysis was a part of our jobs. So I have a tool that is a matrix. And as you're looking at something, it asks you, um, what is your level of uncertainty about the technology? And then what's your level of uncertainty about the market demand for whatever the product is that results Mm -hmm. or just the technology itself. And then that's broken into different stages. And they range from uh, listening for weak signals, you know, which is the very beginning of things, to learning, which means, you know, we've got to test and and prototype to building capabilities and building capacity. So I hear what you're saying about risk, but one of the problems with organizations is I don't see a lot of them set up to take incremental changes. Yeah. On a very regular basis and an incremental and even to make decisions in an incremental way. Right. So rather than having like an internal strategy team put together a quarterly report that maybe people read, but probably just sits around somewhere. Right. What's a daily thing that you can do that moves the ball forward? Mm-hmm. It's not, you know what I mean? And AI yeah. is a perfect like AI is, is a great way to think about this. You could be taking incremental action on artificial intelligence every single day. And that could be something as simple as, I don't know, looking at some kind of deep neural, something simpler, looking (laughs) at, um, so voice, everybody's hot on voice, everybody's talking about voice. So the decision that you could make today is that you're going to investigate like two different training sets, voice training sets, and make a decision about which one makes more sense for your project. The idea is breaking the future down into tiny little chunks. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm trying to get at, right? Rather than waiting for some prognostication or for somebody to make some enormous prediction, and they never pan out, instead reverse engineer the future back down to the present by piecing out little tiny bits of it. Does that make sense? And then making the smallest possible change you can make and seeing how it goes? No, not even that. Just making a decision on something. So a lot of what happens in organizations is the future arrives and they've sort of been stagnant and then right. they collapse. That's yeah. what happened to BlackBerry. Right. 
Right. Right. BlackBerry went from 98% global market share to zero in a decade, mm-hmm. which is an f- incredible feat. Um, yeah. But it it has to do with them ignoring the weak signal, like not taking action right. on the weak signals that all of us heard. Right. It's hard when you have a successful business to sure. realize that you're failing. Worst. It's the worst. <laughs> well, it's not failing, but like... Well, or going to fail. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. The companies that tend to be pretty good at, you know, when they're organized at forecasting tend to be the underdogs. The companies that are very, very successful mm-hmm. oftentimes have a hard, you know, that it's hard to look at your successes and say, all right, we did that. And yes, everybody's super excited, but what are they all going to be super excited about 10 years from now? Right. right. And to make those longer term investments, knowing that there's no way to calculate an ROI. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's 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 challenging. Right. And this applies particularly to big companies, but companies of all sizes, you know, if you have a successful product or a successful business, you scale it and your company changes to be able to provide that service at scale and you lose the ability to do the next thing or that organism rejects anything new. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots of good books which don't frame it in the way that we're necessarily framing it, but The Innovator's Dilemma and Disruption Theory and all sort of talk about coming at it from a slightly different angle, why why this is and how you Right, well, there's two pieces of it, right? So there's the organizational management Mm -hmm. piece, and then there's the understanding the landscape piece. So my what the role of a futurist does is trying to figure out what's next and what the likely outcomes are of the different things that might happen. But that has to work in conjunction with some kind of organizational management plan that then reorganizes teams and companies to meet what's coming in the future. I'll give you an example. So we have all these car companies are talking about the future of of self-driving cars. And so Every major car company is building some kind of fleet right now of uh, self-driving cars. And they're using their current resources to do that. They haven't had to make enormous changes in company structure. Right. But let's stop for a moment and think about what we know about self-driving cars. So self-driving cars work because they're full of sensors. like, And the sensors are being trained using real-time data. Mm-hmm. And so they're being trained to note things like, you know, other objects in the way. Um, they're using computer vision to sense what those objects are and to make decisions on our behalf based on those objects. But the sensors work under sort of particular circumstances, climate circumstances, yeah. right? And what I'm getting at is all of these cars are using real-time information to make predictions and then reactions for the future, But how does that work in a place like Napa, which right now is experiencing unprecedented wildfires that are spreading so rapidly and are so they're moving in these crazy, unpredictable ways that there is some probability that you could be in a self-driving car and, you know, within a minute's time, you know, that wildfire crosses in front of your car. Mm -hmm. The problem is that car companies don't have climate scientists on staff. Yep. So the models are being built by engineers who aren't taking into consideration irrevocable climate change, mm-hmm. right? And how sudden changes in humidity and temperature, crazy wildfires, you know, all of these circumstances that we've never had to deal with on a daily basis are suddenly part of our reality 
that becomes a challenge going forward. So these huge car companies, if they don't, they're going to wind up with safety issues Mm -hmm. further down the road. And we also know that data scientists um, are in short supply. And people who are going into the weather side of data data science are also in short, short supply. So what does that tell us? That tells us that all the car companies should probably be funding academic programs that are specifically intended to study things like weather patterns that are sudden that we haven't seen before, Mm -hmm. microclimates, and developing the types of sensors that would react very, very quickly so that cars can make better decisions. That requires seeing the future, but it also requires an organizational change. It means that for the next 10 years, Ford might need to have its own amazing, super smart, group of climate scientists on staff. And then 10 years from now, once they figured out a bunch of stuff, maybe they don't have that entire unit anymore, but they do have some other kind of unit. Mm -hmm. The challenge with our big successful companies is that they're not nimble enough to adapt. Is there a way to set it up so that they can be? Well, that's out of my pay grade. (laughs) (laughs) I am a data person, not a people person. Um, That I don't know. But what I do know is, and I don't think this is a secret, you know, the the modus operandi for everybody going forward is not to be early adopters, but to be early adapters, right? We have to become individually and organizationally much more nimble. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to be challenging because you have things like human resource manuals and org charts and cubicles, like all these, you know, physical things um, that, you know, I'm sure are very, very difficult to play around with, especially in companies that are large, you know, reorgs are really hard. And if you're going through a reorg every couple of years, sometimes the messaging is, oh, the company's not doing well. When in fact, the company might be doing amazing because it's, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like morphing and, and melding to meet future demands. Is there a possibility that the trend towards how workplaces and employment are changing intersects with this? Oh, if I had a nickel for every time somebody wanted to talk to me about the future of work and time. Yeah, so, but that's another distraction. Here's what, yeah. here's the difference between trend and trendy when it comes mm-hmm. to future of work and AI. Great. The trend is that automation will continue to change many job functions. Mm-hmm. What's trendy? Everybody bitching and moaning about robots taking our jobs right? And that trend will continue for a while. (laughs) You know, some jobs will become obviated, but lots of other jobs will be created, just as we've seen, you know, every time there's a new technology. I guess the key difference here is, this is pretty groundbreaking stuff. And so all of that automation isn't coming in the physical tasks that humans do, we're seeing it more in the cognitive space. Mm -hmm. And so that probably does things like results in the change of workplace layouts, Mm-hmm. Probably means um, different kinds of teams and groups of people working together in different ways. Well, if, you know. if we have the, I could be wrong, but I, I, my understanding is that, you know, self-employment consultants, freelancers, uh, independent contractors, that's on the rise. And so if companies need to be more nimble and need to be able to reorganize and to have that be a positive thing as opposed to a negative thing, maybe those there's an intersection there between more nimble organizations and ones where and people move around between companies more regularly now and those kinds yeah, of things. Well, and that may change too. So we have, you know, a president 
right now that is difficult to understand mm-hmm. a little bit and difficult to foresee how he may react or yeah. act in any given set of circumstances. And while the market has been incredibly robust and for many, many years now, like we're going like seven years, right. the ways that jobs are being created and how companies do business in the near future very much depends on what our current administration decides to do and mm-hmm. advocate for. Mm-hmm. So as of right now, having 1099s on staff as you know, freelancers contributing work to companies, it can be good, very, very good economically for different kinds of businesses. But who's to say that that doesn't become disadvantageous right. several years from now? Because there's a bunch of other things. And again, this is an example of fringe thinking, yeah. right? So if you were to try to, that's, that's what I'm like, my, my fits and starts while I'm talking, that's what's happening in my head. Because the sort of way that I would parse this is I would look at what's happening with healthcare because healthcare is tied to yeah. people's jobs. If it winds up being that the Affordable Care Act goes away, but we we have some kind of health care that is affordable, that isn't tied to work, that's fair, or socialized health care on par with Japan, let's say. It doesn't seem very likely at this point in time. It doesn't, but but even though it's an outlier, it still has to be considered, right? So let's go to the extreme. Let's say that we wind up with health care like Canada, okay, where where anybody has access to health care, it's affordable, it's great. Maybe the quality of care isn't quite as specialized, but everybody's got it. It's not tied to your job. So if that's the case, then you have to wonder how many people who are currently employed wouldn't decide to become independent contractors because they no longer have to worry about insurance. That would change employment numbers. Mm -hmm. That would change how we're, you know, or something else like um, maglev trains. So... In different pockets around the country, there's a lot of discussion right now about hyper-fast transportation. Yeah. And even between Baltimore and Washington, D.C., there's a lot of talk and movement on maglev trains. The corridor between Baltimore and Washington has the worst traffic in the country. I think outside of L.A., I think it's the worst. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we see communities that are sort of locked in. However, if we suddenly had relatively affordable transportation options between those two cities so that you could get from Baltimore to DC in 20 minutes. How would that yeah. change the, the landscape? Now, right? I know you've done a lot of work in Japan, obviously. Can we look there for examples about what might happen in those scenarios? Well, so Japan's in a different situation. Mm-hmm. They don't have enough people. Yeah. That's so interesting that you brought that up because there are not going to be enough people to fill the current jobs that exist. And on top of that, younger people are opting for two part-time jobs versus one full-time job. So the workforce there is sort of turning upside down. Mm -hmm. And historically, it's been hard as a foreigner to come in uh, and work permanently or for, you know, a longer period of time. These demographic shifts are important for everybody to, t- to pay attention to, mm-hmm. regardless of what, you know, product developers, managers, regardless of what country you live in, because we're going to see pretty big demographic shifts all around the world over the next 30 years. Yeah. And that will impact, you know, and that's going to be happening while the AI ecosystem matures, which means we're going to see more automation, which is going to be happening as we start to live longer, because we'll also start to see advancements in things like precision medicine and genomic editing, 
you know, the global tapestry will, will start to change. And yeah. I think it's hard because we're living through all of this, but we are the transition generation. Yeah. Just like the generation that lived towards the end of the 1800s that transitioned from the olden days to electricity, mm-hmm. you know, and light, which laid the groundwork for mass production and, you know, mm-hmm. and factories and everything else. We are that generation. Uh, we are that transition generation from life as we've always known it to what comes next, which is this age of automation, which changes everything. There's another podcast I listen to called Exponent, and they caution in this transition point. They point to what's happened in politics, in government around the world and in the United States now, and they caution that you have to be very careful if you don't get out in front of these kinds of transitions and you start leaving people behind. Yeah, It breeds extreme discontent, which will eventually lead to the kinds of things we've seen today, only even more so. Yeah, and that's the challenge. And I would actually argue that we're already starting to see some of that. Right, right. You know, and I was at an economics conference a couple months ago, and I was speaking, and somebody said to me, well, so what do we do? Universal basic income? What do we do with all the people who aren't going to be able to to move forward? Mm -hmm. And I could have come up with some crazy optimistic scenarios. But the pragmatist in me said, literally, out loud, you know, there's probably no way to help those people. There's probably going to be a generation, unfortunately, there's probably going to be a generation of folks all around the world who are going to lose their jobs and become economically disenfranchised. And it's going to be hard to repurpose that population because new jobs won't have materialized yet. Mm -hmm. And if you look back, you know, futurists spend a lot of time looking back also, right? And if you look back through history, that tends to be what happens. You know, we go through these periods of transition and unfortunately, big groups of people wind up finding a hard time fitting in to the new landscape. My father is in that situation. Mm-hmm. My dad is like one of the last vestiges of old school salesmen. You know, he was a highly effective, trained salesman. And for many, many, many years, you know, that is what he did. And he managed a division of a retail company but in a world where Amazon right. enables you to buy anything anytime, salesmen are, you know, sort of vestiges of that other era. My dad is an incredible communicator. He is incredibly smart, but that is what he did for his entire career. And when the company that he worked for got gobbled up and went out of business because of it was a carpet store mm-hmm. because of online digital retailers. Like, where is my, you know, at that point, my dad was 67. Like, where is he going to go to find a new job? And unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of that. Now, if you try to institute a universal basic income, it sounds like a great idea, but it, it should be temporary. And there's a couple of problems with temporary social welfare programs. Right. It becomes difficult to turn that tap off once it's on. (laughs) our population numbers in the United States don't sustain that. We don't have enough people able to pay in, right. especially under the current administration, which doesn't want anybody else coming into our country. Right. We don't have the numbers to make something like that work on a grand scale. So bringing it back to the technology we built, like, you know, we're the ones out there, a lot of us creating new products, creating 
artificial intelligence creating these kinds of things. Do you think that we need to think about the second order ramifications to the negative ramifications of the work we do and try to take it into account? Or do we charge forward, (laughs) uh, willing to break things along the way? You know, I, I wish you would. Mm hmm. Uh, and I, I want to call out, I am not a pessimist. So I am not somebody who is constantly living in doom and gloom. Right. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a pragmatist. Mm-hmm. And I think that folks who are working in the product space, it doesn't hamper innovation and it doesn't have to hamper your speed to stop for a minute and think through, if I do this, you know, if I do A, what are all the possible results? Mm-hmm. Um, just after the Tay... Uh, Microsoft bot sort of went on a homophobic, anti-Semitic rampage on Twitter. I built, well, I was building bots at that point anyways, just to play around with them. Um, But I built a botanist scale. Mm -hmm. And and the botanist scale that I built, I handed out to a bunch of friends who were developers who were working on their own versions of chat apps and, and chat bots. And I said, before you go into testing, before you even get to QA on this, please take a look at the scale and rate yourselves it won't take that long. And, mm-hmm. the, and there were 10 questions and the questions had to do with, uh, does your bot reflect the values of whatever your organization is? And how do you know that for sure? Is your bot's purpose explicit? Will people interact with your bot? You know, will they clearly understand what its purpose is? So it asks some, some of those kinds of questions, but then it also has questions like, does the corpus, which is the initial training set of data that you use on the bot, does it reflect only one gender? and only one race or ethnicity, or just one side of a story, or does it allow for questions about sexuality and gender? Have you assigned your bot a traditional gender, an ethnic or racial identity? And if so, did you use a bunch of stereotypes when you did that? Does your bot respond to sexist remarks or gendered response? Anyhow, it's the scale that Mm -hmm. asks all kinds of questions. And that might take Again, before you get too far into the process, you know, a product developer could take an hour over lunch even and just think mm-hmm. through answers to these questions. It doesn't require a huge meeting or a big data collection. It's just it's just changing your thinking a little bit. But that sort of thing, thinking through those questions will help the product in the long run yep. and therefore the organization and the people working on the team and everything else. Yeah. We've been having an ongoing conversation at ThoughtBot about the idea of coming up with a code of ethics yeah. for ourselves, and we would share it like we do most things yeah. in terms of a description or guidelines for how we use our technology for the world. That's great. And not enough companies do that. It's good to create that set of standards, but even that should have some flexibility, mm-hmm. and even that should adapt, right? Strong right. on vision. Right. but adaptable because you learn as you go. Right, right. Well, if people want to learn more about you and your work and that kind of thing, where's the best places to, to go? Sure. So all of my research is now open to the public and it's all open source. So you can go to futuretodayinstitute.com and there's a lot of great stuff there. Um, I also wrote a book uh, that explains my forecasting methodology and it's accessible and intended for everybody to read. And that book is called The Signals Are Talking, why Today's Fringe is Tomorrow's Mainstream, and it's available at bookstores everywhere. And of course, you know, online, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, et cetera. Amy, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you. 
And that about does it for another episode of the Giant Robots Smashing and Other Giant Robots podcast. Thanks so much to Amy for joining me. You can find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm slash 252. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. See you next time. Thank you.